I'm really just going to start by introducing Jeremy, who is going to be saying a few words to frame the discussion and introduce our unbelievably distinguished guests, George and Elizabeth. Uh, Jeremy doesn't need any introduction whatsoever uh, as our uh, distinguished former foreign secretary. You already know who, exactly who he is. Jeremy, I know, has had a long-running interest in this issue. And it's something that we at China Research Group obviously have been writing about, thinking about, and are continuing to do work on. You know, it is the great global economic trend of the last 20 years and uh, probably the next 10 years is the rise of China as uh, one of the two economic superpowers of the world and the growth of technological economic competition, uh, you know, primarily um, between the US and China, but also with the Europeans, including the UK, having to think through where they will sit in that new global landscape. Uh, every day, the China Research Group uh, press summary, which uh, many of you will get, um, it contains new breathtaking facts about China's economic rise and the many issues it throws up and the, the interesting mix of policies pursued by Beijing, which are both you know, a mix of smart and effective policies, but also policies that we might have um, questions about the fairness of and how we might respond to. So it, one of the central things that we as the CRG were set up to do is to think about our, our economic policies via China. And so we'd be delighting, uh, delighted to, to be hosting this discussion this afternoon. And without any further ado, I'm going to turn over to, to Jeremy to, to kick off this discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Neil. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, in the year that I was Foreign Secretary, um, one of the meetings that had the biggest influence on me was a very early meeting with Henry Kissinger in New York. And I asked him what was the difference between a good foreign minister and a bad foreign minister. And he said, a good foreign minister is someone who who thinks strategically and isn't always just thinking tactically about how to solve the next uh, mini or major global crisis, but someone who's trying to think about uh, the big questions. And it became clear to me that the, the big question in geopolitics was China. And actually there was very little strategic thinking about it, either in London or in Washington. And um, in particular, this, fact that I've talked about with Neil many times, which is that um, according to the Center for Economics and Business Research, 2028 is the big date, because that is the date they are projecting that for the first time in our lifetimes, the largest economy in the world will not be a democracy. And that's the moment that they think China will overtake the United States. Some people think it, it might be a bit sooner, some people think it might be a bit later, but most people think that moment is going to be within the next decade. Some people say it's already happened when you look at things like purchasing power parity. Um, and of course, that won't be when China overtakes the United States in GDP per head, when it will still be around a quarter of US GDP per head, but it will control the largest uh, dollar economy in the world in dollar terms. So a big moment. And what I wrestled with as foreign secretary is because China is not a democracy, clearly doesn't share our values in, in many areas. Um, what does that mean for the future of uh, people who do believe in open societies? And what should our response be, uh, given that uh, the Cold War was won in terms of the underlying reason, because essentially we bankrupted the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, that meant that Gorbachev woke up and smelt the coffee in a way that is not going to happen for Chinese leaders. We are not going to bankrupt them. They are going to continue to get richer. And so we need to be very smart in thinking uh, how we find a way to live alongside this um, 
rapidly growing economy in a way that's consistent with our values and protects our way of life. So to shed some light on those issues, we have two fantastic speakers this evening, uh, George Magnus and Elizabeth Economy. George, uh, I'm going to take George first. I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. He's the chief economist at UBS, but many other things as well. Um, and he's going to speak for five minutes or so, and then we'll go over to Elizabeth. So I'm going to start with you, George, and if you could just start by saying a few words about yourself, that would be brilliant. Thank you. For those that don't know me, I'm George Magnus. I used to be the chief economist at UBS for uh, what seems like a lifetime. Um, and since I left there several years ago, a few years ago, um, I have uh, two uh, research associateships, one at the China Centre at Oxford, and one at uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies China Institute in London. And um, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Red Flags, Why Seize China is in Jeopardy. And uh, my area of interest basically is political economy. And so that's what I'm uh, going to talk about. So thanks very much for uh, asking me along here and, um, and we'll get, uh, get cracking. So as you know, and as Jeremy has already kind of um, uh, foretold, there's a strongly held prediction and view that China will become the world's biggest economy in the coming decade, uh, as well as quite a few other self-serving sometimes narratives that China is going to be the top dog in technology, it's going to have the world's next reserve currency, and it's going to be the dominant economic power in this century. Um, and this party certainly uh, is not shy about aspiring to things that it's very proud to talk about. It wants to be a modernized socialist economy, as they call it, or country by 2035, with income per head around $20,000 in today's money. It's double what it is today, uh, which is about the same as Mexico. It wants to be the leader in uh, science and innovation, have a modernized military. Uh, it emphasizes a huge focus on the intersect between economic and national security. Uh, defined to include both food and natural resources, commerce and supply chains and technology and the environment. And uh, while we're all cognizant, I think, of uh, the Communist Party's rhetoric, not everyone shares this view that all of this is inevitable. Even the former industry minister, um, Miao Wei, noted quite recently uh, that China was a great manufacturing power, but not the most advanced, and in his view, China was about 30 years away from achieving such status. And who knows what could happen over 30 years? So in this, I think he makes a very strong case that we should be cognizant of about nuance when we're thinking about China's future. And when we do so, we should also remember how our parents' uh, generation thought about the future for Nazi Germany, the USSR, Brazil in the 1970s, Japan in the 1980s, in real time, not with hindsight. With hindsight, of course, we're very clever. We know what happened to these places. But at the time, um, people were having certainly similar views about them as we have about China today. Um, there are, of course, huge worlds of differences between these countries' experiences. But all of them, uh, including China today, pursue or pursued a very similar state savings and investment development model uh, which brought uh, welfare improvements, to be sure, and much economic success. But they also revealed a number of flaws that came up or evolved in the form of some combination of too much debt, balance sheet stress, suppression of private consumption, uh, misallocation of resources and investment, unbalanced growth, faltering productivity, 
and importantly, a failure of their institution. So we should not lose sight about um, how it's tempting to make these kinds of extrapolations, um, but sometimes um, not, all that, um, not all that smart. So we can, of course, predict as, the, uh, as Jeremy um, uh, relayed uh, one forecasting organization's uh, predictions just before, uh, by using kind of spreadsheet analysis. But in my view, this is a very lazy way of thinking about China's future, even if it happened that way. Of course, China would claim bragging rights and uh, would do wonders for their self-confidence. But as uh, you've already heard in per capita terms, that would certainly leave China with uh, maybe 25% of America's per capita income in 2035, compared with 17% today. And it's not preordained and the implications are more complicated than we think. And I'll give you briefly six reasons why I think that's so. First of all, many of the things that China has done successfully in the past 40 years cannot be repeated. Okay, so you can transfer labor from low productivity agriculture to high, manu high productivity manufacturing once. You can put all your kids through primary and secondary school once. You can have basic infrastructure building once. You can join the WTO once. You can have financial liberalization only for a limited period of time. And you can create the world's biggest housing market once. So all of these things were instrumental, highly instrumental in galvanizing China's eruption, uh, unique as it was, but can't be done a second time. Um, secondly, uh, these kinds of reforms, plus many others, are strongly associated in China's experience and other emerging countries with very, very rapid growth in productivity. But both reform and productivity growth have stalled since Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. And if anything, um, have become uh, rather less um, uh, ebullient. Thirdly, it's recognized in China, certainly by many leaders, that the development model needs to change, uh, especially given the very harsh external environment, which has now uh, taken root, which has given rise to something that Liz is going to talk about in a second, which is the dual circulation strategy, which is a sort of Chinese version of decoupling, I think, um, which looks to supply chains, import substitution, innovation, and the breakup of industrial and technological monopolies, Alibaba being a current case in point. Fourthly, the problem in China isn't so much industry or manufacturing, uh, which are world-class, uh, but the uh, uh, absence of really coherent policies to promote and develop consumption and services and address productivity. And indeed, the refusal, I would say, to consider the type of reforms which would lead to stronger and more inclusive institutions. So no rule of law um, with co independent contract enforcement, no com uh, comprehensive property rights, no program for wealth and income redistribution to promote consumption, no agenda for the reform of the tax system or local governments and social welfare, um, and none of the things that we think economists generally think uh, would be necessary to promote the kind of uh, consumption which um, we think is essential for uh, the future. And lastly, um, key issues that will weigh on China's growth in the future um, are, in fact, the sort of key subject of my own uh, book. One of them is debt. Um, so even if China manages to avoid a financial crisis, which I think it probably will, um, the debt eventually has to be paid for. Uh, by consumers or by corporations or by the government's balance sheet. 
and it will weigh on growth. That's the cost of debt, is that it actually uh, reduces the potential for growth, as Rogoff and Reinhardt uh, have explained to us at uh, great length since the financial crisis that we had. Demography is a big problem for China. It's the fastest aging country on the planet, uh, not the oldest yet, uh, but by 2040 or 2050, on most metrics, China will be a substantially older country than the United States, uh, with a much uh, more disadvantaged uh, situation with regards to its working age population. It's also susceptible, like many other countries, to falling into what's called a middle income trap, which is basically about the stall in productivity. Um, and the harsh external environment is pretty important because China remains very dependent on uh, imported technology. Um, it only produces about 16% of its semiconductor requirements, which are the core of all advanced technologies. Um, and it, it spends more on semiconductor imports than it does on crude oil. It's very good at some things like mobile, mobile payments, uh, e-commerce, telecommunications, solar and wind energy, AI and robotics. It's not so good at, apart from semiconductors and integrated circuits, at things like automobiles, airplanes, chemicals, and foundational assets like uh, design, commercialization, and branding. Uh, so conformity and control, of course, are very good from a political point of view if you really want to uh, order things in your society, but we don't think they tend to be that good at entrepreneurship and true innovation, which is really about business and well-regulated markets, not science and engineering uh, per se. So uh, in conclusion, how do we think about China's future and uh, the aspirations which it has to be a dominant power? I think a suitable amount of humility is basically in order. Um, we shouldn't be so confident, I think, as to dismiss out of hand China's determination to win, nor to uh, uh, dismiss its, its view about wanting to shape values and governance in the global system based on its economic heft and rising, expanding military assets. Equally, I think there's no place really for the kind of siege mentality we often hear about in which China's slogans and rhetoric about the future for itself and for liberal leaning democracies are in effect cast in stone. To do this, I think, is to underestimate the potential for volatility and instability in China in the next decade or two, and also to blind us to what we might call our own home improvements, which I think are essential for the challenge that China presents to us. Thank you. Thank you, George. Just before we go on to Elizabeth, just a factual question about what you said. Um, you talked about their debt issue. And um, just explain what's the scale of the debt that China has? And why is it that we tend to think of them as a creditor nation who the United States owes a lot of money to? Uh, what's, could you just explain what it is and how, does their, how do their debt levels compare to ours? Yeah, so think about China the way that we used to think about Japan in the 1980s. Um, so it, it has net external assets, right? Because it's running balance of payment surpluses year after year, they're much smaller now than they used to be a decade or so ago but they're still running surpluses. So China has net external assets in terms of you know, foreign direct investment abroad, holdings of treasury securities, gilts, and so on and so forth. Um, so in that sense, it is a net creditor, but it has a huge amount of domestic debt denominated in renminbi, uh, as the Japanese did during the 1980s. They built up this huge mountain of domestic debt, which is basically created in China uh, and owned by Chinese 
lenders and uh, incurred by Chinese borrowers. So they don't have a debt problem in the way that, uh, let's say, Thailand or South Korea or Indonesia did in the, in the Asian crisis in the 1980s, 1990s, um, uh, where foreigners basically call time and can withdraw their capital. They have a domestic debt issue. Uh, the size of their debt is about 330% of GDP. Um, their consumer debt, uh, which has been rising particularly rapidly, mostly mortgage debt, is now higher as a percentage of disposable income than it is in the United States, where it's been declining since the financial crisis. That doesn't necessarily, we, we don't know that there's a particular number at which there becomes, you know, that it's a kind of a tipping point. But we know that the, the greater is the accumulation of domestic debt, uh, the more likely it is that it will manifest itself in weakening growth in the future. And I think that is already starting to happen because a lot of the debt is, um, is, is bad debt. Non-performing loans are much higher than they acknowledge. Um, and um, to be fair to the government of China, they are trying to lean against this sort of egregious forms of risk-taking, um, which have got a lot of their um, state enterprises and local governments into a lot of financial trouble. But it's very difficult for them to wean themselves away from it if they want to continue to emphasize elevated rates of economic growth, which are dependent on debt creation. Thank you. Um, well, we'll come back. I'm sure lots of people have got questions for you, George. That was fascinating. Um, let's move on to Elizabeth Economy, who has written her book, uh, written a book on uh, she, called Xi Jinping, The Third Revolution um, and the New Chinese State. And she's going to talk to us about some of those issues, um, but particularly the decoupling dual economy issues. Elizabeth, lovely to see you. Over to you. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here with you and, and also with George. And yeah, so I was asked to talk about dual circulation, uh, but I have to say, I hope in the Q&A we can get at some of the issues that you raised at the outset about sort of China's role in the world and how uh, democracies ought to think about responding. Um, uh, because those are the, I think, the, the really important questions that we need to be uh, addressing at this point. But let me say a few words um, about China's dual circulation, which is really the, the newest initiative uh, that China has put forth. Um, Xi Jinping raised it uh, at the outset a little bit less than a year ago, uh, last May, and then uh, came up again at the two sessions this past March. Um, and basically the idea behind it is to increase domestic uh, production demand and reduce reliance on imports from the rest of the world. You know, it's, it's almost like China's trying to create uh, its own mini global economy and maximizing the degree to which, you know, in an in internal loop, right, the domestic um, uh, part of the dual circulation, uh, China can innovate, manufacture and consume at home. Uh, at the same time, it still wants uh, and needs to engage with the global economy, and that's the sort of international loop uh, through exports and uh, through liberalization of capital flows. It still has a need to import commodities and technology and know-how. Uh, I think uh, at the heart of this um, is uh, a concern about the stability of the external market, both as a destination for Chinese exports uh, and as a source of imports, particularly given the US trade war and the entities list, um, that uh, the Trump administration certainly expanded uh, and everything that we're hearing now about uh, secure supply chains. But it also fits very easily within Xi Jinping's larger trend and preference, I would say, for insulating China uh, from influence and reliance on the outside world. And that's true, I think, whether we're talking about the economy or we're talking about politics. 
Uh, I think there were really three push factors uh, for this initiative. Um, you know, first, as I suggested, that the multinationals were going to move parts of their supply chains out of China. This was already happening, uh, you know, beginning in 2016 and 2017. It started to accelerate because of rising labor and production costs in China. Then you had the trade war and COVID, and I think broader concerns in uh, many countries uh, about having too great a reliance on China for things like PPE. Uh, but also rare earths and other critical goods and countries, well, nations, I should say, like Japan and Taiwan, um, uh, both put in significant incentives uh, to reshore their industries. Uh, so one thing you've seen now with Xi Jinping is that, you know, he's very become very committed uh, to enhancing supply chain dependence on China. Uh, he wants foreign investment and multiple sources for every important product. So one of the things that he said during the two sessions was that he wants to have uh, you know, powerful retaliation and deterrence capabilities against supply cutoffs by foreign parties. Um, another push for dual circulation, I think, is the re realization within China that uh, it was becoming more difficult for uh, Chinese companies simply to go out and acquire uh, high-end technology uh, from outside the country, um, that there was increasing skepticism uh, in many countries, including the United States and Germany in particular, but I think also uh, in the UK, uh, that China was going out and was basically hollowing out uh, some of the core technologies, the most advanced technologies. Uh, and again, this began around 2015, 16, 17, I would say, and we've seen a pretty steep drop in, in Chinese uh, outbound investment in those, uh, you know, sort of core technology areas as a result over the past few years. And then the third push factor um, is, I think, concern um, in China about not having access to critical goods. And again, this was, I think, uh, highlighted or accelerated by uh, the actions of the Trump administration and the use of the US entities list. Uh, for example, banning technologies, as, as George talked about, semiconductors um, and the equipment that's used for uh, design and manufacture of advanced chips uh, to some of the companies in China. I think what's important to remember is that uh, you know, China, because oftentimes the narrative is that the United States started this process of decoupling, um, but in fact, Made in China 2025, which came out in 2015, 2015 in China, uh, which was basically China's um, commitment to have uh, Chinese companies control the manufacturing of components in 10 uh, areas of critical cutting edge technology, like artificial intelligence and new materials and new energy vehicles. Um, uh, that they had that in mind, that that, that was really actually a, a fairly significant decoupling effort, right? So in semiconductors, for example, uh, the plan was for Chinese firms uh, to command 40% of the manufacturing of high-end ships that it needed um, by 2020 and 70% by 2025. And as you know, George mentioned, I think it's, it's somewhere between 16 and 17% uh, today. So they clearly missed their target to begin with. Uh, but they have that in their mind. What the U.S. trade war did, what the entities list, you know, has done, is basically force them uh, to accelerate their plans, um, and it's it's put them a little bit off their game. But this was, in many respects, their own intentions. So let me just finish up by saying a couple of words about implications uh, for foreign firms. Um, I think. Uh, you know, initially I had understood dual circulation as focused primarily on technology and high-end manufacturing, uh, that this, these were really the areas uh, that China was focused on, sort of a made in China 2025 on steroids. Uh, but it is also designed to reduce China's reliance on um, the outside world for energy and for agricultural products. And one of the interesting things at the two sessions, this gathering of the National People's Congress and the Chinese uh, People's Political Consultative Conference that took place in March, 
one of the interesting things that was sort of talked around at the time uh, was the idea of expanding this um, to include sectors like tourism and sports and entertainment, cosmetics and pharmaceuticals. And if you look at all those areas, one of the things that you notice is that they're all areas where multinationals capture a significant portion of the high end of the Chinese market. So why have a you know, national basketball association or a premier league uh, you know, when you've got 1.4 you know, billion Chinese who ostensibly are capable of playing basketball or soccer, well, I guess, or football in the UK context. Um, you know, so, so it's interesting, I think, to look, you know, ahead um, for industries, for companies in these areas and think about what the steps that China might take uh, in order to uh, raise, uh, you know, Chinese uh, sort of co competition um, that we tend to think of these areas as relatively safe uh, for, uh, you know, foreign, um, uh, foreign participants, but in fact that China has, or Xi Jinping has in his mind, uh, ultimately replacing uh, those areas as well with uh, Chinese homegrown um, uh, sort of uh, competitors. Um, let me just finish uh, by saying, I think uh, Li Keqiang, uh, the premier and the uh, National Development Reform Commission, which are basically, basically the planning agency, the old planning agency of China, recently, just over the past few days, had a meeting with 50 or 60 US firms. Uh, and they really made it clear that uh, China is open for business. Uh, and in some extent, they're you know, wooing these companies and, and, and you know, the still want foreign capital. Uh, but I think it's uh, important to remember that this is you know, in the near term, uh, that you know, China's vision, Xi Jinping's vision, again, uh, is you know, to ultimately to substitute <laughs> Right, Chinese uh, capabilities and Chinese companies um, uh, for uh, uh, their international competitors. So uh, I think all of this should be looked at with a, a grain of salt uh, because it's over time, uh, I think there will be increasing restrictions and regulations that will seek uh, to limit uh, the participation of many more types of uh, companies and, and sectors in the Chinese market. So I'll stop there and, and welcome any Thank questions and, and hopefully a broader engagement as well. Well, we've got lots of questions that have appeared in the chat function, and I'll come to uh, those in a moment. But let me just kick off with a couple to you, Elizabeth, if I may. Thank you for a fascinating talk. Um, first thing is this uh, dual circulation strategy. What does that mean, for example, for the city of London? I mean, if basically China is planning to become a giant uh, financial hub in its own right, then does that mean it's pretty crazy for the city of London to get really stuck into China because actually in the end uh, they're going to work out how the city of London does things and when they figured it out kick them out is that uh, that's been a pattern that's happened in other areas but I'm just wondering if that is a should be a big red flashing light for companies businesses sectors looking at investing in China well, again, I think you know the smart thing to do would be to have a, a near and mid and long-term plan, right? So there are, there's the ability to take advantage of the Chinese market today, uh, but then to pay attention to what the ambitions are, you know, by 2035, as George mentioned, and, and beyond. And so I don't think it's necessary for companies to start pulling out uh, this minute, but I think in certain sectors, sectors by sector. You know, China is opening in financial services, for example, that's an area that, you know, over the past six months to a year, we've seen fairly significant opening. At the same time, in the past few weeks, there have been a number of new little restrictions and regulations uh, on some of the banks, on foreign banks, suggesting that 
maybe they're going to trim their sales a little bit, right? So you just always have to be aware of, you know, the fact that you can go in, uh, but China can always pass new regulations and restrictions um, that are in some way going to compromise your ability to operate the way that you want to. Uh, but I would say that this is, would be a great question for George because this is exactly the kind of topic that he works on. So I'm going to I'm going to punt that one to him. Okay, George. Yeah, why don't you come in on that one? And I've just got one more for Elizabeth before we go uh, out to the audience. But George, tell me what, what what's your view on on something very specifically like the way the City of London engages with China? Yeah. So. If you're a city firm or, you know, a New York firm for that matter, but we're talking about the city, London city here. Um, I mean, what you see is a relatively welcoming attitude, particularly if you have capital to bring into China because they want foreign capital, dollars basically. Uh, a welcoming attitude if you have expertise in asset management, in investment banking, uh, both of which are not China's forte. Well, neither of which I should say are China's forte. Um, and there are certain products, financial products, which they're not that good in either. Um, and they certainly like the idea of what the city can do in terms of helping them to internationalize the, the yuan, as they call it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, my view is I think foreign firms should be quite wary in the way that Liz described about you know, the commitments that they make in and to China um, because, um, because the strength of those commitments actually um, from the Chinese side actually is suspect. Um, the rules can change. Um, I mean, there's nothing more that China would like than for, particularly with Hong Kong under the kind of pressure that it is now, um, nothing more than it would like than to make places like Shenzhen um, and Shanghai um, you know, Asian financial centers, uh, which will have um, a strong kind of competitive position. I mean, I don't think these things are very likely because capital markets, as the way we really understand capital markets, uh, require something more than just, you know, more than just about money and expertise, both of which are important. It's about, you know, the rule of law, about deep financial institutions, about the, you know, coherence and strategies that have been devised over years to, to develop products and um, commercialize them and so on. But um, yeah, I mean, I, you can understand, I mean, I do understand why, why financial firms are drawn uh, to go to China, and many of them uh, show, you know, no qualms about doing so. But I think, um, I, I think it must, I think it should come, you know, tinged with a warning that actually thing, the, the rules of the games can change on quite prompt, quite uh, suddenly. Thank you. Um, now, this, the second question I wanted to ask you both actually is um, this dual circulation strategy that came out a, a year ago. What does that tell us about? Xi Jinping's thinking about the global order. If he basically wants to insulate China from any foreign economic leverage by making sure that in every key area, China is self-sufficient where it needs to be, is that basically saying that he believes in the Thucydides trap, that there is inevitably conflict between a rising power and the existing hegemon and, and that's just how life is and that he's preparing for that much more confrontational uh, geopolitical arena. Elizabeth. 
So I would say it can't get much more confrontational short of war at this point. I think certainly if you're looking at the United States and China, I think the relationship, you know, by the end of the Trump administration and, and now in the early uh, months of the Biden administration is as low as it's been, you know, since Tiananmen Square and in some respects lower because this is a sort of structural, I think, challenge. You know, the, the rhetoric that's coming out of Beijing right now is the East is rising and the West is declining. It's a little bit reminiscent of what happened after the global financial crisis uh, when, you know, China, basically the, the sort of understanding was that, yes, China was always going to surpass the United States, but it was happening earlier than anybody had anticipated. Then the United States, you know, the economy bounced back and people took a, Chinese took a step back and said, huh, okay, well, whoops. You know, whether that happens again, I think remains to be seen. I wouldn't count the United States uh, out yet. Um, and I think as George, you know, so, you know, beautifully articulated, China faces its own set of, of you know, domestic challenges that's going to need to address. But I would say, I think she, you know, sees a, a, a reordered world order, essentially. I think, you know, in his vision, you know, China, it's not only what happens inside China, uh, but it's sort of China is the preeminent power in the Asia Pacific, right? China's joined on the trade front, you know, not only does it have the regional comprehensive economic partnership, but it has CPTPP, wants a regional free trade agreement with South Korea and Japan. Then it has its Belt and Road, right? Which of course is not just hard infrastructure, but is digital and is, you know, a health silk road and, you know, this massive enterprise. It has its digital currency that it's going to launch. Um, and, you know, and it's trying to set norms and regulations at the, at the global governance level as well um, uh, to reinforce what it's trying to do through the Belt and Road. So I think, you know, the thing about Xi is he really does have a pretty grand vision. Now, it's, all the details may not be filled out. Some of them, you know, come about as things move along, certainly. Um, but uh, I think he, you know, does he anticipate conflict? I think he would like to avoid, you know, kinetic, uh, you know, conflict with the uh -oh. United States. Um, but I think, look, he talks about having the People's Liberation Army be prepared, you know, to fight and win wars. That was one okay. of his objectives. Okay. Let me bring in George on that. Then I'm going to go to Neil and then uh, we'll come to the questions in the chat function. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I want to add much to what Liz has already perfectly said, really. I mean, I think it's something that we, we do need to remember. And we, you know, and there are some very famous speeches that uh, Xi Jinping has made, particularly um, at the 19th Party Congress, for example, as uh, a sort of well-repeated um, uh, 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 passage about you know, China being involved in a long-term struggle uh, between capitalism and socialism, which, you know, which China wants to win. So you know, we, we obviously, we can't pretend that it doesn't exist. It clearly, you know, we, we have to find some way, some modus vivendi of uh, you know, with China, um, but I don't think we should be under any illusion that um, you know that they're in a spirit to to you know to make huge compromises to what we think are necessarily important any more than it would be the other way around. I mean, this is this is an this is a values-based adversarial struggle, and uh, it's a very delicate one because of that. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Jeremy. Um my question is really partly one of analysis and partly one of policy. In terms of anal analysis, how should we think about the way that China's kind of import substitution industrialization differs from other kind of stories in East Asia? Um, there's a really interesting recent piece by the Rhodium Group looking at, you know, what makes it different about having such a huge market, even if you, you don't have, you know, um, policies to subsidize exports and the like, just that having a protected home market of that scale is just a huge competitive advantage. 
Um, and then in kind of in terms of policy and what we do, you know, I don't know, I'm interested in um, both George and Elizabeth's view on how we should respond. Is it that we are, you know, working with others to try and get China to change its behavior? Is that realistic? Or is it kind of um, as individual countries, you just got to kind of fight fire with fire and say, look, you, you know, if you have a negative list, we have a negative list. Uh, you know, you are you're violating the spirit and um, substance of WTO rules, we owe industrial subsidies. Um, you know, uh, to what extent is it a get tough thing? And, you know, are there other places where there's more scope for kind of cooperation, for example, on the environment? You know, it, it seems, you know, in the run up to COP, obviously, we're thinking quite hard about this. How do you avoid, you know, these things just turning into leakage out, out to China? Um, uh, so, yeah, a sort of set of questions about how we respond really and how we should see what they're doing. Why don't you start, George, on this? I'll come in. Okay, George. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, if we if we think about the experience of the so-called Asian tigers, uh, for example, uh, so South Korea, um, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, um, I mean, these countries, you know, they did in their sort of early developmental stages in the last 50 or 60 years. I mean, they did rely a lot on uh, state enterprises, the guidance of the government, um, protectionism, uh, export-led growth. I mean, all of these things were uh, common features. They're, they're th Japan too, after the war, um, relied on these things. And uh, these are the things which are sort of endemic in, in China as well. The difference is, I think, that um, as, uh, as the tigers in Japan got richer, they basically went through important processes of political reform um, in which um, some of the old relationships between the state and industry or the state and the private sector, um, I'm, I'm not saying that they broke down because you can still detect uh, very strong associations between the state and, and industry in these countries still today, but they're very different from the way they were um, in the early stages of development. Now, if you kind of quickly sort of jump to the current, you know, 21st century and China's experience, China is already a middle-income country, very a high middle-income country. Um, it's obviously not poor anymore and it's not um, a rich country either. Um, so at this stage of the development of the Asian tigers, you know, they were already starting to dismantle a lot of these kind of protectionist um, uh, features, uh, which, China seems to want to be emphasizing really, but for very, very different reasons. So, I mean, I, I don't think Liz used the term, but I, I, I think they certainly would like to de-Americanize, um, you know, their, their economy to the extent that they can, um, even though uh, perhaps for the moment, at least, you know, European firms aren't facing the same kind of, of um, kind of reaction. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think, I, I mean, I don't see China as wanting to be autarkic in the way that um, uh, that we might have remembered, for example, the China under Mao, um, but uh, self-reliance, I think they're very, very serious about. Um, I think there are aspects of the decoupling, which, you know, you know, Xi Jinping often castigates the United States for pursuing, but actually, you know, sort of started really uh, in China many years ago with the uh, kind of separation of the internet and so on and so forth. So um, there, there's a much more kind of political edge, I think, to what um, uh, China under Xi Jinping is trying to do, which, which separates it really from the experience, I think, of the, um, you know, uh, protection of domestic industries, which 
were very much part of and have been part of a lot of emerging countries' experiences, in which the IMF, to be fair, is much more partial to nowadays um, than it used to be. Elizabeth. Yeah, I'll just say a couple of words. I think in terms of policy response, um, you know, it's going to require the full array of, of tools, which means, you know, pushing on them to keep sectors open, right, um, using the WTO. I think a fair degree of reciprocity might be in order in the end, um, and I think that's going to require partnerships. So it's going to mean not just the United States, but it's going to have to be working with the UK and the EU and Japan and, and Korea to, to be effective, to bring the kind of pressure that would uh, be you know, needed in order to even have a hope of bringing about, I think, change uh, in China. So, um, you know, I think it's it, there are going to be a lot of tools are going to have to come into force because I think Xi Jinping's natural inclination uh, is, is not an, to be an economic reformer. It's not reform and opening up. It's kind of reform and, and tightening up. Um, and then the last point, I guess, on the, on the issue of, you know, we still want to work with them on the environment and this kind of thing. I'm somebody who does not believe in issue linkage. And so China has its own reasons to do the right thing when it comes to climate change. And um, so they need to step up and, and, and do the right thing. And we can bring pressure to bear on them as well uh, on that front, given their export of coal-fired power plants and other things. So, um, yeah. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Um, just because we have to finish um, in 12 minutes, I'm going to uh, group together some of the questions that have been asked in the chat to the panelists and uh, and ask you both to respond. So there's a, there's a couple of questions on the Belt and Road Initiative. Simon Hampshire asks whether it's now yesterday's news and how did the Chinese leadership view Belt and Road? Um, and then um, uh, Patrick Sinnott has asked, whether the Commonwealth could be a foil against the Belt and Road um, and could have a role in, in providing an alternative. Um, Stuart Patterson on a linked economic issue has asked, what's the motivation behind China recently liberalizing inbound capital controls for portfolio investors? Is this an act of desperation to attract foreign currency, a genuine reform aimed at improving domestic capital markets? Or is there a geoeconomic element uh, to create uh, Western constituencies who lobby in favour of Beijing in Western capitals? So those two economic questions. Let me let me go to George first, and then come to Elizabeth. Um, I'll I'll go really light on the Belt and Road because I think Liz is um, you know will probably have a lot, lot of interesting things to say about that. I mean, it's definitely not yesterday's news. I mean, this is Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy, I think is the expression people use. Um, and um, as she's already uh, suggested, you know, it now has other manifestations. It's not just kind of many, um, infrastructure, but health silk road, uh, the digital silk road, Arctic uh, polar silk road or whatever it's called up in the north and uh, so on and so forth. So this, these are things that I think um, liberal leaning democracies can respond to. I think we've already seen some uh, belated, but um, early attempts, I would say, amongst, say, the Quad countries, so America, uh, India, Japan, and Australia, um, things that I think certainly the Britain and uh, Europe can do as well. Uh, but moving on quickly to the other thing, um, the, the inward move, relaxation of capital uh, restrictions, I mean, this was something that was undertaken specifically because of the strength of the Chinese currency uh, during the last year, whilst the dollar has been 
particularly weak. I think this is pretty much ended now, by the way. Um, I would not expect this uh, liberalization to, uh, uh, to, to continue other than to, um, uh, the question, might, might, I don't know whether the question actually meant to say inward liberalization or outward, but uh, in any event, um, outward controls are here for the duration. Inward um, relaxation is uh, something which kind of switches on and off. China certainly welcomes foreign capital. They're not very keen on it to leave, though. Uh, okay, Elizabeth. Yeah, a few words on the Belt and Road. Um, yeah, I completely agree with George. It's not yesterday's news. I think yesterday's news is probably the focus on hard infrastructure. Uh, I think there's going to be a move away, um, you know, just from building ports and railroads and highways and coal-fired power plants to thinking more strategically. Well, ports, I think, will be strategic because they're, they're strategic for, for China. Uh, but I think the emphasis is going to be on the digital Silk Road, so fiber optic cables, e-commerce, satellite systems, and the and DCEP, uh, the digital currency. Um, it's going to be on the Health Silk Road. Uh, there's an effort now, a big push, um, to think about how China can export its culture, its voice. So media content, whether in you know print or uh, you know television, um, uh, and and sort of also rationalizing legal systems and things, and doing scientific uh, uh, and technology development in these countries. So I would say what we're going to be seeing moving forward is going to be a deeper integration. Um, in some of the softer areas of, of policy. You know, they're talking about closer ties with think tanks and research institutions in the Belt and Road um, countries. So an effort to bring these countries on board, not only in terms of the actual linkages of hard infrastructure, uh, but also I think more in the political and social context. Thank you. Um, now, a couple of slightly more general questions about political uh, issues who says, is there any hope left for democratic political change in China? And David Johnston asks, will Western discomfort and outrage at China's human rights violations reach a point where it hurts China economically because countries and companies decide they can't continue trading with them? So um, if we could just uh, try both of those, I'll start with George um, and then to Elizabeth. Um. Well, on the first, I, I don't really have very much to, to say. I, you, we never say never, uh, should never give up hope, but um, the, the likelihood of uh, democratizing China under Xi Jinping, I think is about as small a probability as, as I think we could actually uh, give it. On the other question about um, outrage, human rights violations. I mean, I, I'm somewhat cynical about the willingness of multinational companies to basically forego business opportunities in China. Um, I mean, companies are uh, used to dealing with kind of run-of-the-mill ethics issues in the countries, host countries, where they have direct investments. This is, I mean, Xinjiang province, for example, I mean, is something in a different league, I think, particularly because, A, uh, governments um, do seem to be taking this very much more seriously, um, uh, not just in terms of guidelines as we've issued here in this country, but also this sense of legislation, which I think is going to come out of the Senate quite soon. Um, but also because I think millennials and um, customers and shareholders in the home countries of many of these companies actually do take the S in ESG uh, much more seriously. Um, and I, I'm not saying that anything is going to change overnight, but I suspect that during the years ahead, 
um, the, these issues actually are going to become important as they were for apartheid, for example, in the 1980s for companies at the time. But this is obviously, uh, as I said before, in a different league. Thanks, Elizabeth. I'll just, I'll just say, sure. Um, I'll say I agree with George. I think the pressures is going to come from, um, from the shareholders, sometimes from employees, but the companies themselves, I haven't seen, for example, uh, you know, voluntary mass exodus of American companies um, who've been sourcing from uh, Xinjiang out. Uh, there has been, of course, some because pressure from the US government, but it hasn't really emanated from the companies themselves. Um, and in terms of whether or not there's going to be democratic uh, change in China, 100% agree. It, it, you know, unless there is um, a real debacle or an extreme slowdown in the Chinese economy, um, then I think Xi Jinping is here to stay for quite a while. But I, I will say it's important to distinguish between Xi Jinping's authority, his institutional authority, and his legitimacy. He definitely got a boost uh, in, in terms of how China managed COVID, how successfully they, you know, uh, clamped down and, and, and contained the virus, the spread of the virus. But we've seen over the past several years, a couple of different times uh, when a, there was elite conflict that looked like Xi Jinping might be pushed back to the second line. And right in the beginning of, uh, right at the outset of the um, pandemic in China, uh, when Dr. Lu Wenliang died and you had that outpouring of, of um, on the internet in China, first time we've seen it in eight years in China since Xi Jinping came to power, you know, calling for freedom of speech and, you know, people directly criticizing Xi Jinping. So we shouldn't assume that because we can't see, you know, discontent and dissent in, in China that it doesn't exist. Okay, thank you. Now we're, I'm afraid we're getting close to the end. Um, so I just like to, um, ask you each uh, one final question. Um, I, my question to you, Elizabeth, is on COP26 and climate cooperation. And uh, I just ask you, to, it was a question really from Jonathan Fenby saying, how can the UK exert more pressure on China on climate change? Um, talking about what you said before about the difficulty of getting linkages. Um, and George, I just wanted to ask you um, about something we haven't really touched on, which is what the shape of Chinese economic investment in the UK is likely to be over the coming years. But let's start with Elizabeth on climate, then to George, and then I'll hand over to Tom to sum up. Um, thanks. Hi, Jonathan. Good to hear from you. Um, so I think, you know, what can the UK do? I, and it's about just about the UK. Um, I think it's about, you know, all countries. Um, and I think it's going to be a combination of um, holding Xi Jinping to account. I think this is an area where Xi Jinping himself has kind of stepped up and claimed climate leadership, right, within the United Nations. He said, especially when President Trump was in power, you know, China is here, we're ready to take this issue on and to be a leader in the international community. Well, if that's the case, you have the opportunity to hold him personally accountable for actually, you know, benchmarking uh, the steps that they're prepared to take to reduce uh, their CO2 emissions, which they have yet to do. And I think one of the disappointments coming out of the, um, of the two sessions was, and the 14th five-year plan was that there was not uh, a, a distinct roadmap um, that uh, China laid out for how in fact they were gonna achieve carbon neutrality by 2060, which in fact is not ambitious enough 
in any case, but happens to be the only goal I know that Xi Jinping has set, the only target that I know that he set, where he certainly isn't going to be alive to see it be realized. <laughs> so, so you know, I think I think there's a lot of opportunity. And the, the last point I'll say is, um, you know, he also said that China was going to green the Belt and Road Initiative, right? That was in the second Belt and Road Forum in 2019. He clearly haven't done that. You know, they've increased the role of renewables, but they're still exporting over 100 coal-fired power plants. That's a very easy area to target and to pressure China to do better. Thank you. And George, about Chinese investment in the UK. Yeah. So um, in a way, the, the Chinese have kind of already kind of addressed this question for their own standpoint, because after their sort of miniature, not miniature, but after their own financial crisis in 2015-16, uh, the government came down pretty hard on what they call frivolous investment. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of, you know, Chinese investment in football clubs or, you know, yachting firms or, um, you know, things of that ilk. Of course, the problem nowadays, and as we look for the next 10 years, is the, as I referred before, to the intersect between economic and national security. What the Chinese would like to invest in the UK are the things that we are least likely to want to uh, exercise kind of liberal scrutiny over, which is telecommunications, energy and technology. Those are the things that they really want. Those are the things that we're likely to feel increasingly wary about uh, for reasons of national security. If it comes to things like real estate, uh, consumer sector, uh, finance, I mean, I don't really see any reason why we should be particularly worried about these things. But I think the, the strategic nature, should we say, of what China wants in the UK, I think we will, we will be in a position, I, I suspect, of um, um, closing doors that previously were open. George, Elizabeth, thank you very much. I'm going to hand over to Tom. Now, we politicians uh, love to get one up on each other, but the only thing I have on Tom is that I have had my hair cut this week and he has not. Um, but over to you, Tom. Jeremy, you have you have many, many things on me, uh, as well you know. And look, uh, th thank you very much for very kindly chairing this afternoon's session, uh, a masterclass in how it's done and, and certainly many lessons for me. Um, but most importantly, thank you very much to George and Elizabeth. Your perspectives, I have to say, were absolutely fascinating. And I, I, I must say, I, I share, um, I know this is not universally uh, the case, but I share Elizabeth's doubt that uh, what we're watching is, is full majesty. And I see uh, certainly cracks in the, uh, in the firmament. So um, I, I have to say, I found, I found that absolutely fascinating. And George, your perspectives on, on investment and the, and, the, uh, and the issues to come were absolutely uh, riveting. So I look forward to staying in touch with you both. And I hope very much that we'll have you back at some point. And on that note, can I just uh, remind everybody that the China Research Group obviously sends out a daily and now a weekly email. They're not quite the same in tone. The daily one is sort of a list of press stories and the weekly one on Saturday is, is uh, more of a roundup and more discursive. Please do join, uh, join us both. Follow us on Twitter in the usual way, uh, sign up to our website or rather follow us on our website, stay in touch. And most importantly, at 10 o'clock in the morning on the 27th of April, a Tuesday, back to our normal time, we have the uh, Financial Times China editor, James King. And for those of us who have been reading his work, well, for years now, actually, for an awfully long time, uh, and have been very impressed with his insight, I have to say, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he has to say and to asking him some questions myself. So please do join us. 
you know the format, sign up a bit in advance, advertise it to all your friends and family. It's all public, it's all free, it's all online and uh, no questions are outside bounds. So thank you very much to Jeremy for, for, for stepping up and doing a much better job than I've ever done. Thank you to Elizabeth, thank you to George, and thank you to everybody for joining us.